Hello, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper, and as always, I'm joined by Matt Taibbi. How are we doing this week? Um, okay, a little sick in a non-COVID way, I think. Is it technically fall yet? Yes. When did that start? 21st. Okay, yeah, this week. I, I don't like that. Uh, the autumnal equinox. I don't like the autumnal equinox. Contrary to popular belief, not a big fan. Uh, Why not? I'm actually torn on fall. It feels like spring turning into summer in reverse. Like it feels like we're going back, like we're rewinding. Mm-hmm. I do like fall clothing more. I like boots. I like wearing boots. I like scarves. I like that part. But I love warm weather. For me, my fall clothes are just my clothes. So <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Do you not change what you wear, really? Not terribly. I, I guess on the warmth front, yeah, I guess maybe a little bit of that. But Well, I, what, I, pe- what viewers don't know is Matt wears... Um, not lederhosen, full full lederhosen, but he wears the lederhosen shorts every day. You just can't That's tell right. because yeah. of what yeah. he's. He alternates between that and a kilt, but you can't see this that. This is, I think, contractually, this was in one. This was one of the one of the nineteen secrets that you were uh, required not to disclose on, oh, yeah. on, during the show. But that's Sorry all right. That. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, We'll let that one go. Um, a lot of stuff to talk about this so week. Much stuff, yeah. um, not all of it positive. Not all of it fun. Uh, but I guess we should just uh, start with the four food groups, and we're going to switch up the order this this yeah. week a little bit because Why not? Uh, of importance issues. But if you could, um, you well, because fall with- actually, this is this is the autumnal equinox of new of uh, four basic food groups. Right. So we're gonna we're gonna go backwards. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what do we have for Republican suck? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So Republican suck, Dan. If we could just go to this democracy now clip we have a double whammy double feature of trump being trump the washington post reports pentagon officials spent most of a one billion dollar coronavirus relief fund on jet engine parts spy satellites drones body armor and dress uniforms for troops the money was allocated by congress under the cares act and was meant to combat the pandemic this comes as hospitals around the united states continue to report serious shortages of n95 masks and other medical supplies meanwhile president trump continues to hold campaign rallies with his supporters packed shoulder to shoulder with few wearing masks On Monday, as the death toll approached 200,000 with nearly 7 million U.S. infections, Trump told a crowd in Ohio COVID-19 only impacts elderly people with heart problems and other problems. But it affects virtually nobody. It's it's an amazing thing. By the way, open your schools. Everybody open your schools. At least six teachers have died since the start of fall classes alone. I don't even know what to say. I like that it's so well-rounded, but it also really speaks to the wonderful connection between um, uh, military buildup, neglecting the lives and health of people in this country. What's that thing? One day the Pentagon will be holding bake sales. Yeah, or no, to, to pay for, to pay for jets or whatever it is. Yeah, no. Yeah. But to be fair, I don't think the Pentagon scarfing up that billion dollars is on Trump. You mean because the Pentagon isn't a rep- an arm of the Republican Party? I mean, the defense secretary is obviously an appointee, but but right. the Pentagon does what it does. It yeah. was more the decision to give them the, the money. Do you think the Pentagon would have done this under a Democratic appointee? I mean, the Pentagon does horrible things under yeah. irrespective of. Right. And of know. course, the Democrats voted against de- decreasing the budget by 10 percent. Right. So yeah. 
I mean, it's yeah. a pretty bipartisan, disgusting thing. I mean, All right, so Tr Trump's opening yeah. offer was seven hundred and fifty billion, and and their and their counter offer was seven thirty three. So it's not like there's a huge difference then. But the second one really does count, right? That is a Trump yeah. thing. I mean, it's unbelievable. It doesn't really affect anybody. Yeah. I mean, it is unbelievable. And the rallies that are shoulder to shoulder, most people not wearing masks. I, I would like for Trump to cease and desist saying that and for him to say uh, it's not actually a good idea to to uh, to say that this doesn't affect people, given that over 200,000 people have died and uh, open the schools and go back to schools. I mean, he should go visit some schools. How about that? Is that a fair thing to say? He should sit in on some school classes and breathe on people. No, be breathed on. I see. It, it's this is just it's so classic Trump though. Like he could say a thousand things, and and he always has to to take a step beyond the maximum of what you think would be logical or defensible, right? Right. I mean, a couple steps, a couple. This a is couple. like a jump, a hop, skip, and a jump pass. Right. But I'm but I'm, but I'm already starting with the far end of what. Right. Yeah. What I think you could possibly get away with saying. Right. So yeah. basically everybody in this country knows somebody who's either died or is or is tremendously right. ill and not recovering or. And then that combined with telling people to go back to school. I mean, I do think that hearing stuff like that does have an impact, a very well, direct impact. People are doing that all over and that's that's by no, they are, but yeah. but they are. But I think that hearing a casual command like that also a dismissal of who it affects. I mean, I do think this is a case and, you know, I think that some people often over uh, are somewhat hyperbolic about the blood on Trump's hands. In this case, I do think there's blood on Trump's hands. I mean, this, there's no way this doesn't affect people's behavior. If you're a Trump, if you're someone who listens to Trump, I mean, to me, it's clear that this will increase the number of people dead. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Right. I mean, his casual his presentation of this is so casual. Again, if you're a Trump supporter. And you hear that. I mean, just think of the cumulative ripple effects. Uh, so, OK, for Democrats suck. This is a story that's a classic example of a story that just doesn't get any play because it doesn't fit either sort of the Fox wing of the news media or the CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times. Um, Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic, you know, basically the modern media stories, they, you really don't hear about them unless they, they fit cleanly right. uh, into a narrative. And there are lots of news stories like the one we talked about for the last couple of weeks, the Assange story. You notice right. it, didn't, it didn't get any press at all until that little headline came out about the interaction with Rohrabacher and there was a suggestion about right. a pardon being. So that was that was the only thing I got, got covered. Well, I also got the useful idiots bump. It did, right? Yes. Uh, but for the most part, it, it was kind of in this nether zone. And, and that happens with a lot of stories. If yeah. it doesn't particularly feed either side's uh, narrative, you just won't see it. So um, this has been going on with Syria. And there's been, because both American and Russian troops are in Syria. There has been this progressively worsening situation and a situation that's grown more and more stupid and fraught with danger for the last four years. And because uh, it doesn't fit in either in either party's conception of what's going on, the, the Trump people obviously want to highlight the fact that they're not starting anything in the Middle East and, and they, they are not being the aggressors anywhere. And meanwhile, on the uh, on the Democrat side, nobody wants to say anything that would suggest 
that there's any kind of adversarial relationship between the Trump administration and Russia. So this story right. has kind of fallen in the, in the wayside. And there, a couple of years ago, there was a, a problem where the Russian and American troops were uh, giving each other a hard time from across the Euphrates River. Then over the summer, this this happened. And Dan, if you could see the this uh, video, I marked bumper cars. And we should take a look at this. A bunch of armored Russian and American vehicles are, are driving across instead of a desert plane. And but, yeah. there's two different versions of the story, so we can't really say what's going on. This video came from the Russians, by the way. Okay. And look, the Russians basically sideswipe an American armored vehicle, start yelling stuff at them. There was enough contact that four people ended up with injuries. This is completely idiotic. There's no reason why our troops should be anywhere near each other. And there were conflicting explanations for why this was there. The Russians thought the Americans uh, wouldn't be there and were unlawfully obstructing them from going to a place they were supposed to be. Americans are saying that they, 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 their intelligence suggested that the Russians weren't going to be in this space. So this is, this is two nuclear powers that are bumping into each other. These aren't exercises. This, could, this is a situation where they could fire at each other at any time, right? And we could be in nuclear war basically, or uh, in a very serious situation. Nobody pays any attention to it. And then last week, uh, this news story comes out. Uh, and Dan, if we could um, look at the New York Times story that says, uh, US sending more troops to counter the Russians. The military said on Friday that it was sending Bradley fighting vehicles, advanced radar, and more fighter jet patrols to Northeast Syria three weeks after a Russian armored vehicle rammed an American ground patrol and injured seven American soldiers. So. We're sending more troops to the region. We are probably going to end up having more confrontations. And this story basically got no play in the United States at all. The Democratic response to this, uh, on August 31st, Joe Biden said uh, his response was to rebuke Trump uh, for failing to do more about that altercation. He said, did you hear the president say a single word? Did he lift one finger? In other words, they, they want him to escalate more in this situation. So here's this. I don't know. To me, this is this is a classic uh, example of what I can't stand about the Trump era. You know, the, the Democrats have gotten all over Trump for every silly thing under the earth, including some things that are important, but lots and lots of things that are stupid and meaningless. This is an incredibly important situation where what they should be urging uh, Trump to do is to get his troops anywhere you know out of the out of the universe where they could possibly interact with russian troops because the russians are just as stupid as us if not more in these situations and yet there was there was barely any talk of it and what talk there was criticized trump for not being aggressive enough so i i, I don't know i don't know what you think about that but, I, but it drove me crazy no yeah it always drives me crazy when the when the democrats kind of try to go to the to the right of Trump on this issue on foreign policy stuff. Although it kind of makes sense by now, right? Like Trump has this, and I can't stand the resist, how resistance libs respond to this argument, but Trump has an isolationist strain and people are unable to accept that my, that anyone saying that is not also calling him some kind of peacenik dove internationalist. Right. But it's just true. I mean, it's, it's I don't I, st I don't understand why people can't get it through their heads that someone you don't like may be less hawkish than the Dems. And in Trump's case, it could easily be something as simple as 
just politically, he doesn't see the right. upside for yeah. getting into a war. Maybe he even has some kind of insight into his own incompetence as commander in chief. Yeah. That's possible too. Yeah. Right? I kind of doubt it though, but yeah. He also may, he may not want a situation where he's got generals in his office every morning. Right. Yeah. Uh, it could be that silly, right. but whatever it is, we should be yeah. encouraging it. Because yeah, exactly. The, the last thing we want is to right. have a, a war, especially against Russia. Under Cheeto Mussolini. Yeah, it's exactly. so incoherent. Let, right? I mean, that that is the last thing we want because what's he going to end up doing? He's going right. to end up, you know, puffing his chest out and talking about how, you know, our missiles are bigger than yours, right? And we're, and we're going to end up trading ICBMs and, you know. Do you think I, the Dems could just want a military buildup and like weapons build up without actually, and they're kind of just betting on it not turning into to war. No, I think the the democratic leadership is tends to be very very hawkish. Yeah. Towards Russia, they've gone back and forth on this, but certainly in the last twenty years or so, they ha- they went from trying to be conciliatory towards Russia. When Putin came in, they kind of changed their tune a little bit. Then under Obama, it went back. Right. They tried to do the reset. Then when that didn't work, they went back again. Right. Um, and since then, the posture has been to be uh, more aggressive uh, t- towards Russia and to reject the idea that, for instance, George Bush had in the in the early Bush years of, you know, we're more worried about terrorism than we are about Russia. So we will be willing to work with the Russians to combat terrorists. That's they're at the opposite place now. So they're they're now in a place where they where the sort of official position of the Democrats is that uh, the Russians are a, a more important threat than um, any potential terrorists that we could have uh, uh, be fighting yeah. in concert with them. So that's they're red a, dawning it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Them, so yeah. Now we're we're in Syria, which I don't think we should be in Syria, but whatever. The and and we have this ridiculous situation, and nobody seems to care. Twenty or thirty years ago, any kind of skirmish with what was then the Soviet Union would have would have been a huge deal. I guess that would have been more like forty years ago. But now, no people don't. They're, they're not particularly concerned about uh, military conflict with a nuclear power. Doesn't seem to rate as a news story. So. Right. Whatever. Remember when Obama was like uh, the 1980s called? They want their Cold War back or something. Right. Yeah. They want their foreign policy back. Yeah. Yeah. And he said he said that Russia was a, a flea on the butt of an elephant, which I which I, I think is pretty close to true. Yeah. Um. And you know that's all been lost in the wash since right. then. Although he but, Obama did kill a fly. Did he? Oh, you don't remember this? He like famously was like so badass. He was sitting waiting like for an interview and there was a fly buzzing around and he swatted it, I think, on his thigh. And people gave him a hard time for killing a fly? No, they loved it. Oh, I see. All right. It was a very Obama. It was like a casual low key. It's actually a good metaphor for his kind of low key um, militarism. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah. So I thought that was that was gross, you know, and Biden egging Trump on. But anyway, so what do we have for? Um, isn't that terrible? For, isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. So for isn't that weird? We have strange alien-like sea creatures discovered by scientists during Antarctica expedition. 
the alien-like creatures are uncovered in documentary The Secrets of Antarctica, which has been shared on YouTube to document their journey. These bizarre, never-seen-before-sea creatures were discovered below the ice in Antarctica by baffled researchers. Can we see that creature? I kind of want to call bullshit on this story a little bit. Why? Because, you know, one of the things they're saying is, like, these animals look like nothing we've ever seen before. And some of them just do look like animals we've seen before. I guess you're right. But some of them are weird-looking, right? Like that second thing. That's a fish. Yeah, it's like a jelly. It looks like gefilte fish. Actually, have you ever had gefilte fish? <laughs> I yet? have had gefilte fish. That looks like if gefilte fish came from a fish, like as opposed to being like some weird fish, ground up fish. So that's what it is. Thing. Doesn't yeah. that look like a native uh It is. It's fish? a native gefilte fish. We've finally seen it. Yeah. You see? That's cool. Look, as someone who's pretended to like gefilte fish probably enough times to win a medal. I mean, I... I I'm oh, very yeah, much that's... in favor of discovering the actual gefilte in the wild. but Oh, you can say, actually. You're like, I'm sorry. I can't. I was able to eat. I love this. It's one of my favorites. But now that I've seen, you should just say you, ado- you, went, you adopted a baby gefilte fish. Right. Now I just can't. Yeah. Yeah. For so- social justice reasons, I can't. Yeah. Uh, so for Isn't That Terrible this week, um, I had something planned, but then somebody tweeted a clip. Uh, that they thought would be a good basis for a discussion on useful idiots, given that we've discussed something like this for for a while now. So this is actually just a it's just a clip from uh, the British television series called Criminal uh, that features oh, yeah. noted, noted actor David Tennant. Yeah, uh, you might rec- know him as Doctor Who. Uh, oh right, or or the Scott or the cop from uh, Broadchurch. Broadchurch, yeah. Right. Yeah. Sorry, exactly. He's a Scotsman. In this show, he plays a murderous, uh, corpse-abusing doctor named Edgar Fallon. And while he's being interrogated, he pushes back on the idea that he's done anything wrong by um, abusing the corpse. So uh, I think, obviously, for obvious reasons, I think we yeah. need to discuss this. Yeah. Uh, Dan, if we could just see the this clip here. Look, the, the wicked thing that I did was to squeeze the life of a human being. That was wrong. That was unforgivable. I will be properly punished for it. What I did to a corpse is neither here nor there. Brian, if you're more disgusted by what I did to a corpse than what I did to a living man, then your moral system is upside down and needs overhauling. So a lot of people, a lot of people made the, yeah. the idea, the point that that other guy was like me in that original episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, yeah, yeah, so, right. So just so people, for people who are only listening and not watching, just want to make sure our podcast listeners are in on this. Um, the cop who's interrogating him looks kind of ashen. And um, he has and, sort of mouth agape. Yeah, mouth, uh, yeah, he can't believe what this guy's saying. And I, <laughs> and this does indeed mirror the dynamic between me and Matt um, when I made my bold but very morally defensible uh, argument about necrophilia, which was not planned, again, which is what I think makes it so great. But yeah, he did look kind of, he. by the way, that guy kind of looks corpsey. So maybe that's yeah, why, yeah, 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 the yeah. cop looks kind of corpse-like. Um, got a bit yeah. of a pal- pallor. Anyway, so, uh, so just to be clear, uh, you're, you're in line with that. Of course yeah. I am. Uh, okay, good. All right. So lots to talk about in the real world this week. Obviously, RBG died. So this happened uh, basically a week ago. Uh, this show is going to come out on a Friday. This happened last Friday. And there's lots and lots of stuff to talk about here. But uh, for me... There are two issues that I, that I think are kind of important and are worth kind of ha- discussing a little bit. The first one is, how do you think this is going to affect the election? 
Uh, right. Because my immediate response, I don't know about you, my immediate response was that this was a huge boon for Trump because, well, depending on what, what they did, because the Republican voters historically have always cared quite a lot about the Supreme Court. Yeah. And if the Democrats make a lot of noise about packing the court or um, if the, if somehow the appointment doesn't go through or is stalled, you, you might get a lot of sort of fence sitting, never Trump or Republicans who, who will turn out for the first time. And it's always driven turnout. It drove it, it drove it even last time. Like I think 70, something like 70% of Republican voters last time were motivated, uh, at least in part by the Supreme court issue. So I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. There's a lot of different theories about it, but it, some of it's contingent upon what they do. Right. I mean, if I almost feel like it, it's, it's going to have more impact for Trump if the nomination doesn't go through before election day. But I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, I think that, yeah, it'll be a big get out the vote thing for Trump. I mean, I think we'd all rather I'll speak for myself and probably you when I say we'd probably rather not have a nominee, um, another Supreme Court justice appointed by Trump, given um, who we Point at last time and he'll, he'll likely appoint. It's an interesting question. Like if Trump understood that, do you think he does understand that? Now, I, I, want, I feel like Trump would way prefer getting in another term than putting another uh, Supreme Court justice on. Because he's yes. so not an ideologue and he's so into power. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a question of whether whether they're they understand that or not. I'm sure they've 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 poll tested it every which right. way. But it'll be interesting to see. Uh, obviously, Conversely, it can be a huge turnout engine for the Democrats as well. Right. But it's a particular kind of voter on the on the other side. Like I agree, most of those voters I think are already going to turn out. You know, so uh, and yes, and also I think that right the real the real like people who would maybe not would be the ones who think that there's going to be an important you know that 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 they need to stop the possibility of having an abortionist. Or right, but, baby but, killer on the court, right on the yeah. right, on the the Trump side, um, and, and the people who would care about not having an anti-choicer on the court probably are already voting. I think that the, the difference is that with the Supreme Court on the Republican side, you're going to get people who um, are maybe lukewarm about Trump in all other respects, right? So some of the religious right, which is has a very tepid relationship with Trump on on certain things. Some of the, you know, sort of ha- hardcore uh, political conservatives who don't, some of them who don't see Trump as being particularly conservative or- Like a, a Rick a, Wilson type? Yeah, exactly. Like there are, there are some of those people who are, who are now going to drift back into that orbit uh, just for this particular thing. Whereas on the, on the Democrat side, I feel like most of the people who already were afraid yes. of an anti-choice court we're probably already not going to vote for we're, we're already going to vote Democratic. Right. I, yeah, I agree. That would so. be interesting. And and we have a little window into that. Right. Because I would say one of the never Trumpers is Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he He's already said, gone over. Yeah. Which is a really I mean, this is a kind of a good reminder of how much this is about decorum for a lot of people. I, I mean, I think I think Romney sincerely is not a Trump person. I mean, this is interesting. The Supreme Court stuff is really interesting because it's a certain type of power and position, right? I think you're right about Romney. I mean, I think someone like Rick Wilson is a just a mercenary. 
But it is interesting. It's like for all the people who I mean, how much does your never Trumpism count if you're going to then vote for him? I mean, the irony is that these people are more anti-choice than Trump himself is. I don't think Trump. Right. Cares. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's 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 exactly the point is that the tr- where Trump, to the extent that he's had problems consolidating Republican support and he and nobody should forget that he absolutely did have problems with that in 2016. Like he even though he got most of the votes that he needed to get to win, it, the, the, the the support was kind of soft on the Republican side compared to what it is now. I mean, yeah. his, his favorability, you know, hasn't really gone up overall, but uh, on the Republican side, he's he's now sort of has the profile of a typical incumbent, which is he, he was nowhere near that when he got elected the first time. And but the people who are still holdouts on the Republican side tend to be like, you know, the hardcore religious conservatives who who see what's clear to everybody, which is that he's not religious he doesn't right. really care about these issues in the same way that that they do, but for the for the opportunity to put somebody on the court, you know, they would they would get back on board with him. I think depending yeah. on who he nominates, like you know, that that's what will be so interesting. If it turns out to be somebody like Barrett, then you're going to get all those people. But I I doubt he's going to do that. I think he's going to go with Lagoa. Although we'll see. Right, we'll probably know by the time the show comes out. Right, and I I do I would say that I think. Um... I don't think I think the evangelicals were already going to vote for him. They were, but it's not like, you know, it's a matter of it's, enthusiasm. It's not with the same. Yeah. Yeah. Not like the not like they did for George W. Bush. Right. Was one of theirs. Actually, right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, they do have um, Mike Pence there. Right. Which is why he chose Pence. Right. Yeah. I mean, and also our, we're going to talk about this with our guest, the esteemed um, jurist Samuel Moyne. But uh, I mean, RBG, no one really wants to say this, but she should have retired in 2013. Right. And I don't know. I, 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 have, I have mixed feelings about all this. I, I also think the uh, there's another thing I want to talk to you about. The sort of feverish uh, promises that we're going to burn it all down. And, and you know, if, if he tries to push this through, how do you think that's playing? Personally, I think that's a political mistake. But well, I don't even know what burn it all down means. And uh <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, Sirota has some interesting stuff to say about this, right? About what how, well, he was saying like the Democrats could be more uh, aggressive about this. Procedurally, that's one thing. But if you're threatening to like, I don't know, it's mostly a media thing. Right. Um, I mean, it didn't work with Kavanaugh. And their behavior during the Kavanaugh thing was like appalling, I, I think. I mean, regardless of what you think, of, I mean, the moral uh, kind of assessment of it, we're seeing this again. It's like in 2016, democracy was on the ballot. Unprecedented existential threat. And now again, they're using the same argument. I think it's almost just like a, another sign of how um, incapable the, the resistance is of adapting or realizing that their methods don't work. So to me, this is all intertwined with like the the, the media slash political tendency yeah. now to turn every single controversy into uh, a DEFCON one, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis level uh, disaster. And because there's a law of diminishing returns with this stuff, you have to continually up the ante in order just in order to keep keep treading water. So it's no longer enough just to say we're going to do everything we possibly can politically we're going to we're going to pressure all of our elected officials and do you know, this and that to try to make sure that 
um, that this vote doesn't happen. Uh, you know, there has to be an implication of, you know, unrest. Like this time we were, we're really not going to stand for it. It's mostly, again, it's mostly come from the press. Yeah. Well, implication. I consider the press part of that kind of resistance, I would say. Right. Even if right. they're not officially, but yeah. Which is only going to, I feel like it's, it's just going to, it's going to backfire. And, yeah. I'll, uh, and you know, politically, you know, what, what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to say, okay, well, well, clearly we should put off the vote so that, that there are, isn't unrest going for, going forward. I mean, I, I think, I think it plays really badly. I think the Kavanaugh thing ended up kind of being a net minus for Democrats. Well, also that was a great run. example of how they're, he, I mean, if the Democrats had wanted to, or like they they could have caught him in lies within his actual testimony, uh, which they did not do. And there right. were examples of that. Yeah. And then well, also in running those Avenatti stories, which which clearly were not reliable. And, yeah. Uh, and that, you know, that played incredibly badly everywhere outside the so MSNBC audience. And there's a, like a broader discussion that I guess we'll have with our guests about the problem with the Supreme Court. But, you know, then there's a question of packing the courts and, and whether that should be something that Dems run on. Um, I don't think Biden will run on that. But I do think that I don't know. It all it's very it's scary. I mean, I do. You know, what's interesting is that the, the Supreme Court is one of those things that I do think people who are very critical of Biden. I do. I, I, I think that's something that that people often use to argue against either abstaining or protest voting or voting third party. And mm -hmm. I think it's a convincing thing that and the, and the COVID stuff. I think there are real differences there. Yeah, there are absolutely real differences. I just, yeah. uh, there are a lot of eventualities. I just worry, I worry about with the situation. One that this, that'll be mishandled and turned into a, um, something that's going to actually increase turnover for Trump. I can right. see that happening in like 19 different ways. Yeah. And the, the second one is creating a situation where there's going to be public pressure to create some kind of unrest to fulfill expectations that have already been created in the media around this issue, which I, I just don't think it, it, in this situation right now with things are, are, you know, our sense of collective sanity uh, is, already uh so frail um i i worry about that yeah. a little bit i guess i don't really see i mean maybe I, I i kind of feel like the people who are out in the streets are different from the i mean they don't like trump obviously and they don't want him to have a push through a, a nominee but i kind of feel like the people who are the resistance media and the resistance blue check resistance i don't know you think that they would actually like take it to the streets I feel like well, I mean, we've we've already seen, uh, you know, like you know, Reza Aslan's over our dead bodies, literally burn Congress down before letting Trump try to appoint anyone to the Supreme Court. We're shutting the country who, down. Who said that? Is that all, Reza? Aslan? No, no, it's some blue check screenwriter. I just think that those people aren't going to go out into the streets, and the people who are going to go out into the streets don't particularly listen to those people. Right. Yeah. Let's uh, let's hope not. I guess the last thing I feel like I would say about this is that. The stage one response to this was to immediately put everybody into this crisis mode. And, you know, is it possible that he'll nominate somebody who isn't a monster? I don't know. Like, would, should we wait and see to, to, to see what happens? Uh, yeah. Because there, there, there is a range. Like, if if it's Coney Barrett, her 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 rep record is basically she's never once ruled in favor of anybody who is 
um, taking on a big company or, you know, some kind of corporate malefactor, anything like that. Like she's, she's pretty consistently on the wrong, on yeah. the wrong, but you know, there's other judges, um, are a little different. Right. And, uh, and may not be so political in nature. So, you know, you yeah. Could, Although I don't know why he, why would he do that? Because he, he might, he might be valuing one thing over the other. Right. So if he goes for Lagoa, he might be more interested in Florida. He might be more interested in the Hispanic vote than he, he than in firing up his base. So there are political, there are political calculations that, yeah. you know, some of them might break slightly more for the, the the typical Democratic voter than than others, right? So I feel like there is a wait and see element that should be there. Well, I, I just want to tell you also that for some reason I'm on a Trump email list. I think everybody um, is. Oh, is everybody? So did yeah. you get the email today from Donald Trump Jr.? The subject line is my father. And then it says he is going to fill that seat. It's all capital. Uh, so he writes Donald Trump Jr. There is a vacancy on the Supreme Court and my father is committed to filling it. The left will stop at nothing to keep him from doing his job. They just raised over 60 million going to take all hands on deck if we're going to give my father the resources he needs to fight back against the lies coming from the left and their fake news friends. And that's why we're calling on you to step up. This is so important that the president has activated a short-term 800% match. We can't offer this to everyone, Al. They think my name is Al for some reason, by the way. We're only reaching out to our most trusted supporters at this time. So, just, it sounds sound like the, the, the clip from, uh, what's, what's the movie? Fatal Attraction. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if, I'm giving my father an updated list of every patriot who responds to this email. Will he see your name? Contribute <laughs> now. Thank you, Donald Trump Jr. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. And we have a great guest to talk about it with. Uh, we're going to talk to Yale professor and historian, historian Samuel Moyne. So let's let's get to that that subject. Yeah. Awesome. So excited to have uh, joining us on the show, Yale Law Professor Samuel Moyne. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, really excited to get your insights into many things. Uh, including, of course, the Supreme Court. Also, um, your uh, thoughts on, your really interesting thoughts on war, humane war, why that's a dangerous thing, perhaps, to move towards. And yeah, I guess, Matt, should we start off with the uh, RBG discussion? Or do you have sure, any Sure, yeah. Opinion? I mean, um, you wrote a, uh, a really interesting piece uh, called The Court is Not Your Friend. And obviously, you, you teach a lot. Uh, but before... Before you even get to the question of what people should do about the Supreme Court, what what um, politically the situation means, I, I, I'm actually I'm glad to talk to you because I'm confused about some basic logistical things about this situation we currently find ourselves in with uh, a justice uh, dying at the tort in, the, in an election year. So. Plus, Matt really considers the court a very close friend. So now he has to rearrange his social life. I'll, I'll try to deprogram him. Okay, good. Yeah. So, so just technically speaking, uh, what what is the process going forward here? Because I, uh, my understanding is okay. They've taken the the filibuster off the table, um, or it's a simple majority now. Right. So, what happens from here on in, and is is there any political uh, thing? that someone who would be interested in, for, for instance, stopping 
uh, a vote from taking place, apart from getting a supermajority or a, a majority vote, what what can happen here? Well, there there are the internal moves and external moves um, inside the Senate hijinks and kind of outside mobilization. Uh, so, you know, nowadays, uh, since the elimination of the filibuster, first for judges and then for Supreme Court justices, as long as Mitch McConnell can muster 50 votes plus Mike Pence's vote, uh, then the nominee, Amy Coney Barrett or whomever is in. And it's really on a timeline of of McConnell's choosing. I'm sure they're having a more political and strategic debate about when to have that vote before or after the election. Um, but it looks like they're going to do it. I've seen some reports um, that suggest that the Democrats can make like procedural, you know, moves, you know, as part of the dark arts of the Senate to try to block it. But I think people uh, don't think that's going to be possible in the end, just because McConnell is a master of the Senate and retains as much authority to block many of the moves. So the only hope, I guess, would be external mobilization. Um, the question is, like, who who can you get who would change their vote? Because it'd have to be um, some Republicans who would defect. And I'm I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, if if they were to lose in in November because you you kind of help their Democratic opponents, um, those th- who are running they'd have even more incentive as lame ducks on the way out to vote the nominee in after November 3rd and before before the, the this part, uh, term of the Senate ends. So I guess the only hope would be like isolating some senators, probably ones who aren't up for election, but whom, you know, you can get to think that that you will punish them in some way. I guess in the end, the prize is so big, you know, generational right-wing control of an extraordinarily powerful institution that it's just hard to understand what you could place in the balance against that prize that would lead any Republicans to change their minds. But procedurally, there, there isn't anything on the way to the vote they can do anymore, right? Like, I, it, typically, it goes from the Judiciary Committee, they talk Correct. about it for a little while, there's, there's, Correct. and then it, then it goes to the floor, but there's no way station on the way anymore, no, right? No, no, there's no, there's no tool that is, is kind of a fail safe. Um, and that was the filibuster, which is gone. So there are, le- there are lesser procedural hijinks um, that in, include things like asking for delays in the Judiciary Committee or, you know, doing things on the floor. But, you know, McConnell can then call for what's called a cloture vote, which is also a majority rule. And they can move to a final vote on this kind of at the time of his choosing as as soon as the the process reaches that point. So, um, you know, it's 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 grim from from this point of view. And that's happened a couple of different times, right? I, think, I believe in 1968, they they didn't get the cloture vote, but they did in 2017. And so now the precedent now is basically it's going to go forward if they want it to go forward. It seems so. So the article you wrote about the court not being our friend, I, I, what what is your recommendation? I mean, obviously, you're, you're, first of all, can you outline what the sort of basic thesis is 
that maybe you, you think it sounds like what you're saying is that that um, people who are progressives have tricked themselves into becoming supporters of an institution that may actually hurt them in the end uh, or, or placing too much importance in it. Uh, what, what is your actual recommendation for what they should support in terms of reforming the court? Yeah, so, you know, the diagnosis I make is that in general, the, the Supreme Court has been on the side of reaction uh, rather than progress. And if you just generalize, you know, there, there are four periods um, and three of the four, it, it looks pretty baleful. Um, first, before the Civil War, when it's deciding, you know, it's basically propping up um, the slaveocracy, including not just in cases like Dred Scott v. Sanford, but Prigg v. Pennsylvania, which defends like the, the, a federal slave catching law against um, abolitionists who, you know, get Pennsylvania to try to protect um, blacks there. Then you get the kind of post-Civil War period when it becomes like a defender of the emergent um, gilded age order, you know, in the class hierarchy of that period. Um, and it really took a popular progressive challenge to the Supreme Court for, for close to four decades before that ended. And the Supreme Court initially just kind of agreed to get out of the way of, of democratic or progressive forces. And then there's today, the second Gilded Age, where it's playing a similar role in slightly different doctrinal uh, ways. What I find is that most liberals, including most law professors, are kind of in a, a hangover relationship to the exceptional third period of the Earl Warren's court without really thinking about why it was exceptional, how, how long ago we've moved on. And we can get into, you know, whether it had any redeeming features in that period, what they were, why they happened. But my, my, um, own view is that once we come to grips with its role in American history, we try to give it a different one. In the 30s, when Franklin Roosevelt challenged it, he got them to basically like promise never to do it again um, without fundamentally changing the institution. You know, and so my conclusion from that history is that we, we shouldn't just ask them to be nice this time and not abuse and use you know, too much of their power, we should take it away, uh, which do doesn't mean need to be complete, but there are various strategies we can use to change the institution. And we can get into like what some of those are, what the relation of court packing is to them. But, you know, the, 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 the main question is, I see it as how do we kind of adjust the institution's power? Um, and so that there's kind of one game in the country winning majority power in legislatures and not this second game that turns out to be more important of winning majority power on the Supreme Court, which right now the Republic is a game the Republicans are going to be winning for a very long time. Isn't the theory that the legislature makes the laws, the president has a veto power over them, but then that the court is basically restricted to interpreting those laws. I mean, what's what's wrong with that as a kind of checks and balances set, set up? You know, nothing, you know, from what you said, because we'll always need courts to interpret the law and apply them to cases. I mean, you know, that's that that seems completely right. Um, 
But if it's going to be a check, it has to be doing something else, which is invalidating legislation as as unconstitutional. Um, and there's really been a huge debate almost the entire uh, time in American history um, about whether the Supreme Court or the federal judiciary should have that extra power to go beyond interpreting what the law means, which, you know, if it doesn't like it, the legislature can always revise it. And what's what's been unique about the period since um, the 1950s is that that debate disappeared. And, and really, it's a debate which matters because no other democracy gives judges the amount of power that um, ours took. It, it, at various moments. So that that's what, you know, I'm talking about. N I'm not, you know, suggesting you shut down the courts, let alone the Supreme Court. It's about whether it should exercise the power of like a super legislature to rewrite the, the law in the name of an interpretation of the Constitution, as if the people don't have a view about the Constitution, as if the legislature, when it writes the laws, isn't assuming that they're in conformity with our basic values. I remember a Wesleyan professor of mine was like, think about uh, the Supreme Court on um, rights of minorities. Isn't it, do you really think like our, our democracy, the, the masses would be, support protecting LGBTQ people the way that the Supreme Court would be? Sure, kind of so- like, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the traditional view is that, you know, the, the, the genuine threat in American history is tyranny of the majority. You know, the narrative I'm giving you is actually that the Supreme Court has been a linchpin in the much bigger problem, which is the tyranny of wealthy and powerful minorities. Right. Um, and that the, the, those who have suffered um, include like the transracial class majority and that's that's what we hope to see through you know some you know political movements realignment whatever to come to the fore today you know most of the rights that we enjoy as citizens came from the legislature whether because they've right. amended the constitution often when they've done so the supreme court has gutted the amendments like the 14th amendment after the civil war or through ordinary legislation like the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, do we have this problem that there are going to be some minorities that do indeed suffer? Um, and what do we think about their situation? Well, you know, I, I think it's a real concern. Um, you can't look at this nation's history or world history and not conclude that it's it's a problem to care about. But I, I think in the end, it turns out the Supreme Court isn't a good or reliable defender of minority rights and interests. So it, it, sadly, it seems as if our best hope is to win power within majoritarian democracy, including if we care about the fate right. of minorities in it. If you take, you know, the LGBTQ case, um, Actually, you know, it's very, very debatable that we needed the Supreme Court hmm. to um, allow for the outcomes we have today, um, including the right to marriage. Now, it may be that some parts of the United States would refuse those things like they would refuse a woman's right to abortion. Right. But the, the truth is that those rights are already pretty weak weak in in those places like the american south and 
the Congress, I mean, national majorities haven't exploited their power to defend those rights through legislation. You know, there's no reason why Congress couldn't pass an equal rights, not just amendment, which it's already done, but, you know, federal law that protects abortion rights or, or makes it, you know, freely available as part of universal health care. Um, and, and, you know, same, same with, you know, any practically any other right you can think of. So the, I, you know, the question is, do we empower judges because we're concerned about minorities when it turns out in these periods of American history, they've, they've been instrumental in propping up the tyranny of minorities of, of wealth. Right. And I, I, I don't think it's a hard question. Yeah. The other kind of minorities. Right. The, you might say the wrong minorities whom we, we want to, you know, discipline and sub- subject to majority will. That's what democracy is. And yet the Supreme Court obstructs it. Why, why is that not just a political problem with, that's really rooted in this, the structure of how we elect presidents who nominate Supreme Court judges? I mean, we do have examples of the court doing what we would imagine it would do. I mean, during, during the war and period, it, it fundamentally changed a lot of things about how we do policing, for instance, um, in ways that have been lasting and kind of important. Um, and that was maybe that's just a stroke of luck based on who was president during the, the, uh, that time period. But but so why, why is it not just a political issue? Like if, if we had had a different kind of um, electoral system, maybe back in the late 1800s, we have a different ruling on corporate, corporate personhood or. Sure. Or... You know, look, so absolutely. The, the bottom line is in the end that, you know, if you win political victory for, and, and you have a majority coalition you've built to dominate the political branches for long enough, the judiciary will follow. And it's certainly true that progressives could just, you know, leave the Supreme Court alone um, and then just, uh, you know, kind of adopt the burden of, of winning for long enough and in great enough numbers so that the Supreme Court would come into line. You know, the trouble, as FDR observed in, in when he had to face down the court, is that um, the, the Supreme Court can slow down the crystallization of your majority policies, including in in our case, like the democratizing policies of HR1 or the economic and ecological policies of a Green New Deal for literally decades. And so the time lag is is extraordinary. And and so then we're kind of, we have to ask, well, when we look critically at at the Warren court, um, do we really give it that much credit? Well, you know, would, would formal apartheid have remained f- for that many more years absent Brown v. Board? You you cite um, the application of you know Miranda. of 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 Miranda and other uh, other crucial um, Bill of Rights decisions to you know state and local policing, but you know then we look at school desegregation and kind of how little progress it made, how much backlash there was, Roe v. Wade and the destruction of the the Democratic Party's support it, it, as a result, the rise of mass incarceration, which none of these amendments, including cruel and, you know, the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment ruled out. So 
we're, we're, we're talking about a balancing act. And if, if we knew that we could reliably count on um, the, the Supreme Court to enforce the morality that we share, then there'd be, you know, there'd be no reason except, you know, maybe some democratic theory for us to get there on our own by convincing our fellow citizens. The trouble is that doesn't happen. And so I agree with your big picture that ultimately it depends on convincing those fellow citizens um, and building a big enough majority. But the, the, there's this, the, you know, the fly in the ointment, the Supreme Court remains is, is a pretty big one. Um, and, it, and it can introduce, you know, a really long delay in letting that majority change policy. Have you paid attention to uh, who the possible nominees are? I mean, people are talking about Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa. Do you know about these judges? And can you tell us anything about them? Sure. I mean, they're, um, it's almost certain to be Amy Coney Barrett just because Trump has generally deferred to actually others throughout uh, his four years, especially when it comes to the higher courts, the the Circuit Court of Appeals and 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 the Supreme Court and there's really a pretty big consensus around Amy Coney Barrett. There's some talk that like Trump would be helped in Florida if he went the other way, um, but I'll be I'll be very shocked if it's not her. Now she is, you know, a a more or less you know predictable um, right wing jurist. I think her her confirmation will have enormous effects um, just because I think it's clear she's a reliable vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, um, where probably in her absence, they would just continue cutting the meaning of that precedent down, you know, because even as of today, it's it's been made so hard to get an abortion in the South that whether we want to speak of, you know, a meaningful federal right to abortion is already open to question. In, in many other areas, she'll just confirm the drift of the Supreme Court in this neoliberal direction, which actually some of the Democrats um, on, on the panel have, have kind of colluded in, in taking it toward in recent decades. So the addition of one person is rarely like catalytic or transformative. Maybe on this one issue of abortion, it would actually lead five of the justices without Chief Justice Roberts to overturn Roe v. Wade, which might not happen otherwise. And I'm not suggesting that's not a big deal. Um, it is, but probably in most other areas of law, it would just be like the same, more of the same, except more so. So, so what are the different um, ways that you see this playing out? Um, let's say this happens, then Biden is elected. Um, he then gets to replace, I assume, the next uh, soon to retire Justice Breyer, I believe, right? I mean, that's the most plausible. Kind of, I mean, yeah. I, we assume that Clarence Thomas would try to outlast Joe Biden in the same way that Ruth Ginsburg tried to outlast Donald right, Trump. Right. You know, and anything of, could happen. Right. Anything but, could happen. And of course, we should probably talk about the interesting relationship between Biden and Clarence Thomas. Um, how much of a actually let's let's go there. How much did Biden enable Clarence Thomas's rise to the Supreme Court or empower him as a sitting Supreme Court justice? Well, he was instrumental as as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. I mean, you know, we can get personal, but in you know, we've all seen, you know, whatever the you know, the Netflix reenactment of this lately. Right. But um 
you know, the truth is that Biden, you know, maybe like all of us, only more so again, has been a prisoner of his time, you know, all the way along. And at that moment, um, the he he responded, you know, as part of the like com- the comedy of the Senate required, you know, he um, hung out with these other white men and they decided that this wasn't a big enough deal. Um, and there was deference, even in a democratically controlled Senate, to the you know right of the president to nominate a Supreme Court justice when a seat is vacant. Um, we've totally given up those those norms since, really, as a country, but you know within the Senate too. So you know, I I definitely think he sh- his treatment of Anita Hill is part of the record that we ought to think seriously about. It's mainly testament to changing norms in the country yeah. about gender and about sexual violence. And um, so, I, but I, so, but I would kind of broaden out to think less about his own limitations, which may be mm. substantial and more sure. about, you know, wh- where we've come, why um, so really starting with Robert Bork before through the Clarence Thomas nomination and through our time, we've we've really converted national politics into like these psychodramas around filling Supreme Court seats. And again, the reason is not having to do with any of these individuals, Biden, Thomas. Uh, it's more with what's at stake, which is policymaking authority over all Americans and it is, it's, it's hard to argue that the, this particular institution ought to have it. To address that, what are some of the reforms that you could think of? I mean, I've, I saw an interview with you where you, you talked about uh, some of them that, are, that people have discussed, like changing the jurisdiction, requiring a supermajority for, uh, for overturning laws on constitutional grounds. But what, what would you like to see happen or what, what, are, what are some of the better ideas? Well, so, you know, it's like a menu and it's it's sort of a la carte, meaning you can, you know, do one or more. I mean, it seems almost certain that the Democrats will respond with some form of court packing in in Katie's scenario where Amy Coney Barrett's confirmed not only Joe Biden wins, but the Senate changes hands. If that if that happens, it's hard to imagine them not striking back. Now, in fairness, the Constitution just says that presidents get to um, nominate Supreme Court justices. It doesn't say anything about like how late in the term they get to do so or are forbidden from doing so. Donald Trump, along with Mitch McConnell, may have been norm busting, but you know, th- there's no there's there's no law that he broke, um, and there's no law that he changed to engage in this partisan behavior, which of course for him is about locking in Republican control for, you know, know, as long as he can. Um, You know, the Democrats could try to do a modest court pack, which would be, I think would involve two new justices, one to negate either Gorsuch or Barrett. You can't do both consistently. And another to kind of, you know, replace to get the Merrick Garland, the, the, the stolen seat filled by a Democrat. They could go big or what we call Polish um, in the sense that Poland has like added like lots of seats to its Supreme Court. 
um, just to try to make it a political branch of a party. And so you could imagine the Democrats adding four or eight or however many. I think that would be very difficult, stoke a lot of backlash. I guess my take is whatever they do, it's it's like, you know, moving around the chairs, adding the chairs on on the Titanic, you know, and it's not thinking more deeply about what the you know, best role for this institution is, especially if we, you know, care most deeply on the left about building a progressive majority that is able to legislate kind of pro-democratically and for a Green New Deal. And so that's where we get into Matt's, you know, question. You could core pack and still do other things to reduce the significance of the institution. I, you know, for right now, I provisionally like a, a kind of jurisdiction stripping model, which basically says if you pass a really important law like HR1 or the Green New Deal bill, you say the, the federal courts cannot hear challenges to this law, don't have the authority to rewrite it. And because the Constitution actually gives tons of authority to Congress to determine the jurisdiction of the courts, it seems like it's plausible. All of these you know, a, approaches could could would require a fight with the judiciary, but this seems like one that would be easiest to win on legal grounds. As you mentioned, we could also try to institutionalize a supermajority rule on the Supreme Court, where, you know, if they had to agree seven to two rather than five to four to invalidate a federal law, it's just they 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 would invalidate fewer, and so. It would, it would, in effect, restore authority to the legislature to write its laws. We have a situation now where, you know, we're going to have yet another challenge to the Affordable Care Act this fall with a 4-4 tie, unless John Roberts, you know, joins the conservatives, in which case it'll be 5-3. Uh, and if it's 4-4, that means that Obamacare is dead. Previously, the Supreme Court has like rewritten the law by taking stuff it doesn't like out and the lower courts have done obscene things with it. So, you know, th this is like not what interpreting the law is supposed to look like. And it's really that power, that excessive power that needs to be reined in. Were you surprised by the Mitt Romney response or did you expect that? You know, not really. You know, the era of the the resistance has seen the lionization of so many shady characters who who are you know long since confirmed you know problem children uh, for the left that has has often embraced them kind of in in purely opportunistic ways and so I think it says more about um, how the impeachment could have led to the rehabilitation of Mitt Romney in the first place than that he returned to type in this case. Of course, he's a Republican. This is an extraordinary opportunity for that party, leave aside Trump, to lock in minority power for a generation. Why would he not join you know, his brethren uh, and a few sisters in, in seizing that, that chance, which any of us would, would take if, you know, if we had it? I guess my, my, my question about court packing is, why wouldn't that just initiate uh, another long round of tit for tat? Like, just to take an example, the filibuster situation. I mean, that began in two thousand. Was it thirteen? Right with right. when the Democrats uh, 
stripped out that requirement, the filibuster for other kinds of judges in response to all the, the filibustering the, the Republicans were doing for Obama's judges, which sets the stage for Trump to the, for, for this era when they take it one step further. Why wouldn't that just happen with court packing? Like the next time they, they right? So in, unless you're making a structural change to what the, or conceptual change to what the Supreme Court is, I feel like it's just more fighting over power otherwise. Agreed. I, I'd say it's even worse since in a way you can only set the Senate majority rule to, you know, 51, 49 once. Um, there's no other, there's no spiral to take place. And so when, when they mutually undid it in this series of steps, it ended. And actually, I think I'm of the opinion that it was a good thing. So I'm in favor of majority rule. It, you can entertain supermajority rule at the Supreme Court because it would have the effect of transferring power back to majority rule in Congress. Um, but as you say, it's much worse with court packing because it, it is in a potentially you know, infinite loop. Um, and that's how you get these examples of Poland, which I think has over 100 justices. Um, the, the reason that tit for tat would occur is precisely because the prize is so big that every time power changes, you would attempt to kind of reestablish it for your side in this other institution. And that's why I can't use the metaphor of games. Like if you're playing the democratic game, why establish a parallel one with, as if like, First, we win in one, and then we transfer over to the judiciary to lock in our gains. Why not just play kind of the game amongst our fellow citizens of convincing them that our policies are better um, and then institutionalizing them? Um, the, the, the disempowering reforms, unlike court packing or in conjunction with it, would just make the courts less big a prize and it would actually force the derelict legislature to reactivate. I mean, one of the major American problems is how, you know, in all of these realms, war and other realms, the, the Congress has basically stopped working. And arguably one reason is that it's, um, it's, it's colluded in its own abdication by giving its own power to the, the judiciary. And then having the occasional fight over who gets to or the executive the executive in the war making context, but in all these other policy areas mm -hmm. um, to administrators or, or the judiciary. And, you know, saying the judiciary can't do the legislature's dirty work would be to me, you know, an essential first step towards restoring the legislature as what it ought to be, which is like the heart of a democratic polity. Um, so I'm with you, Matt, that, um, you know, while we may see a limited court packing, hopefully limited, it would only make sense if kind of um, done in connection with this broader agenda of disempowering the court through other me mechanisms and therefore democratizing the legislature and therefore the country. But that would require the legislator to sort of legislature to reimagine its role a little bit, right? Correct. Which they, they've been going complete. Both parties have been going completely in the other true. direction. That's true. For, for a while. No, of course, all of these reforms, including if you want to get into it, you know, reforms to war powers, but also, you know, deference or really delegation to the Supreme Court of legislative power, um, you know, are occurring because of powerful interests. But 
you know, the point of ideas and movements is to force the hands of our political actors. Um, so, I mean, you know, otherwise, what's the point of the podcasting and, and so forth if, if we're not getting people to then force the hand of these, you know, politicians one way or the other? Uh, and they've been allowed, they've been allowed to do the wrong things. Well, on the war front, I know Katie, you had some questions about this, but uh, yeah, just briefly, if you could just touch on a little bit on on how, I mean, I, I guess this goes back to the to the '70s, really, right? But but uh, but especially during since the Bush years, the the legislature has continually walked back its own authority, even or even potential authority on. Uh, military action. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, kind of another really interesting feature of our times is that we have this alleged fascist in the White House who's who's kind of definitively revealed um, the dark side of the modern presidency. And I'm not saying there aren't going to be reforms but uh, after Trump, but it's really night and day compared to the, the 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 moment in the 1970s where not just because Richard Nixon was evil, but because there was a recognition that the American state um, in war making and surveillance, CIA uh, malfeasance had had been so unethical that there needed to be major reforms. You know, amazingly, in spite of the the a lot of the resistance discourse in the past few years, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of appetite for having that kind of moment after Trump leaves the White House. You'd think it would have to do with a, a lot of things, not just the low hanging fruit like forcing presidents to share their medical records and taxes, making sure that there are rules against the kind of naked corruption and self-dealing in which Trump and his friends have engaged in, but also like giving another look at the presidency we created under, under, you know, prior executives that Trump inherited and, and maybe above all in the war making context. So after Vietnam and Nixon, there was this war powers resolution, which Nixon actually vetoed, um, but passed anyway. And, it, it was intended to force Congress back into the you know, cockpit of American war making um, as the founders had designed it in the first place. Um, that law has been basically reduced to meaninglessness, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats like Barack Obama during the um, Libyan intervention. And it seems as if there, there would be a chance after Trump, um, given the recriminations around the killing of Qasem al-Sulamani, you know, just the, the extraordinary fears that Trump would engage the United States in a, an, another endless war, another aspect of endless war. You'd have like a moment to, you know, put some new, you know, tread on the war powers resolution just doesn't seem like that's going to happen. It would be nice if it did, but it would be great if, if we could, you know, could, could generate the political will um, to make people take seriously the rhetoric they've deployed about, about what Trump has meant for the United States. I, I worry that after he falls, it's, it's as if there'll be a lot of scapegoating or what I've called Trump washing. And people will say, the problem was Trump, not the presidency. 
And in effect, we'll have a restoration of the status quo ante where, you know, people in both parties will, will, would rather have the, a powerful president in spite of Trump than engage in this kind of reform. I mean, hasn't that been one of the big tensions for his entire tenure is he gets into office and suddenly, I mean, now the president has all these sort of imperial authorities that he, that he didn't have, you know, not terribly long ago, including all the surveillance authority, um, you know, that Dick Cheney built sort of state within a state kind of stuff. And they've, they've crafted the critique of Trump over the last four years to be almost directed solely at him and not at his political authority. Uh, it feels like they're, they're trying to sidestep so that they don't have to make any institutional I think changes. that's right. I mean, that, that's been clear all along. I mean, it's been a worry of some, uh, some of ours all along. I mean, it was most graphic in the midst of impeachment where you had s- some on the left and right, you know, um, propose that w- we should maybe not approve the National Defense Authorization Act, but in, at the very heart of the that those weeks of impeachment, um, you have people who were leading it, like Adam Schiff, you know, f- fully involved in just signing off on this annual ritual of um, approval of massive military spending. The, those like you know, Ro Khanna, Bernie Sanders, who like say, let's let's take a moment now that Trump has inherited our handiwork of a surveillance and security state to kind of take a look at it um, and decide to spend, you know, our, our federal dollars in, in just a slightly different way. And the mainstream refuses. So, you know, it, it is a tragedy that um, we won't come out of this administration repealing the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which as you alluded, to has been used kind of as an almost like endless war on the installment plan permission slip. And there have been really interesting insights in the Trump administration, not just because of the way he's used the surveillance state, but the way it's been used against him um, and how the, 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 you know, inspector general's report in particular on when, when the, when the federal bureau of investigation can open investigations and so forth. These, these have provided insights into the um, security state that are chilling and that w- and rare w- w- and, and rare. Um, and yet the, we miss an opportunity to look past Trump and, figure out how in a way Trump is exploiting powers that we gave him, um, that the resistance is exploiting powers that they not, they ought not to have and, uh, and, and think about the kind of fundamental reform. I mean, it suggests that, that some of the critics aren't serious that when there was this, this really dreadful president, Richard Nixon, um, who inherited that Cold War state, you know, scandalized people actually, you know, for the bombing of Cambodia illegally and so forth. There, there was a kind of national consensus that something had gone really wrong and the presidency needed to be reined in and it's not gonna happen as far as I can tell. And it, it, just, it just, I think reveals some of the hypocrisy about recent discourse and about the fact that people are hoping that Trump is like an aberration and we can go back to the way things were, them ruling, them using these extraordinary and unaccountable powers for their ends. 
Right. It doesn't feel like there's a church committee hearing coming up in the in the future. No, right? I, I haven't I haven't heard any proposals for that. Right. There are some proposals about post-Trump reform, and you can find um, you know a really good account of what of some of the ideas in a recent book by of some some former administration officials called After Trump. Many of them are kind of low hanging fruit um, that you know are, are are crucial for good governance, like um, fighting the last war, hoping that someone like Trump, you know, basically corrupt, um, you know, transactional kind of con artist doesn't get back into power, and making sure that he's hemmed in or she. Um, if that should happen, but it's as if like those little things, you know, however important are, are masking the, the much kind of more disturbing realities that ought to have been revealed and we, we ought to face seriously and it's not going to happen. And can you um, talk about, you know, something that I, I had you on my show the other day and something that I brought up was, uh, and Matt and I have talked about is this very hypocrisy around the issue of Assange and Snowden and Manning, where you have, you know, a virtual silence among media, the same media that says that Trump is attacking free speech, is attacking the media, violates rule of, of law, goes against norms. These same people also praise Obama. And then we have a case where Obama decided not to go after Assange. Um, Trump and Pompeo are going after him. Uh, what is the kind of, uh, besides the obvious hypocrisy, um, what are your thoughts on those cases from a jurisprudential perspective? Hey, like that, Matt. You know, I, (laughs) I don't think jurisprudence adds a lot in this case. It's, you know, it's, it's just, you know, the ordinary citizen looking on and kind of trying to reckon with the hypocrisy and selectivity and, and, and really trying to understand why, um, you know, given the heroism of someone like Ed, Edward Snowden, which nonetheless led him to be widely reviled in some of these, you know, beltway circles, Trump gets into office and suddenly everyone's for um, transparency and, you know, the, the national security state is, is scary to the extent Trump, you know, has power over it and heroic to the extent that it targets him. And it, it just seems like, you know, a rhetoric masking the, the grubby angling for power within Washington and like the, the bigger ethical issues about what kind of state ought we to have, what kind of powers ought the president and the, you know, the, the CIA and FBI ought to have, you know, got bracketed because what what most of these voices care about is you know that they get to hold and exercise those powers, um, not their political enemies. So I don't think you know jurisprudence is helpful. You just have to be an observer trying to fit together people's actions and people's words. I guess I meant partially in terms of the criminality of uh, what Assange and Snowden right. and Manning did. Well, you know, sadly after World War One. You know, in the midst of the Red Scare and so forth, there there were these laws passed that regrettably give the, you know, um, uh, the uh, American prosecutors enormous powers to pursue anyone. But, you know, the amazing thing is that they haven't been used. And and yet then you get um, Obama, who begins to um, pursue leakers very seriously, much more seriously than even during the Cold War. 
Um, and or whistleblowers. Whistleblowers. And Trump, Trump is selectively following suit. Although, as we talked about the other day, it's, it's like an extraordinary fact that in the last um, weeks of the Obama administration, some of us were calling for him to use the pardon power for Snowden. And that didn't happen. But Trump like openly talks about, you know, the fact that he might pardon Snowden. Um, I'm sure he won't, but it's it's kind of an extraordinary thing um, to to kind of compare these two these the, these right. two guys in that respect. I, I bet you that if he doesn't pardon him, it's going to be because he was swayed by Susan Rice's tweet, uh, which was a response to to the possibility of Trump well, exactly. maybe uh, pardoning Snowden, and her response was, "I just can't." Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's 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 that was a totally amazing a tweet, and it it. It, it's a revelatory of just the the you know the assumptions that reign within this very narrow and really geographically narrow set of people who are just used to rule and think the American national security establishment is entitled to power, really without any you know broader ethics um, right. or or broader you know conceptual defense of like well what didn't didn't edward snowden do an a morally honorable thing that americans should embrace because it revealed something about you know what their servants do in their name um but i don't think we can rely on susan rice for that kind of insight we we do know that you know she will be exercising a lot of power come january yeah. 20th unless disaster strikes and trump wins again just the last thing I have quickly about about that, um, just so that the I, I understand legally what you're talking about. So Obama prosecuted a lot of people under the Espionage Act, and there were some. This is sort of like the Official Secrets Act type laws that have been on the books for a while. Does that mean they they basically always had the ability, if they wanted to, to go after people for say obtaining, possessing? Um, you know, national what they call national defense information. Correct. But this would this would be the first time that they've really done it in this in this context, right? With like a a publication or or a you know a media case. I That's guess the right. Pentagon Papers can't qualify, right? But but yeah, yeah, that, yeah. But except, but that was that was then exempted by First Amendment claims. Um, you know, it's it's extraordinary. Bill Barr gave this speech the other day. Um, which was really about defending himself against accusations that he'd um, protected Trump's cronies, which he did. But the, the content of the speech was about the, the high principle, which we should all kind of reacquaint ourselves with, that just because the state can prosecute um, individuals under existing laws doesn't mean that it's right or necessary to do so. Um, and that the the extraordinary power that our laws give prosecutors um, should always be leavened by discretion and forbearance, um, and that wasn't the story under Obama. And it ha you know the ironic thing is that it hasn't been the story under um, Trump, except for Trump's cronies whom Barr's protected. And yet the principles that Barr was defending in that speech, you know, if we don't kind of teach them. Um, including to prosecutors themselves, then we'll have, you know, we'll have really failed.
So just quickly, uh, two more questions for me. One is um, returning to the type of nominee um, you think Biden would put forward. I mean, I, I think what you said makes sense, which is that his defense of um, Clarence Thomas is more kind of a, a, a product of its time, not a predictor of who he would right. uh, point today. That, and then I got to ask you, because what's a political podcast without a discussion of Tolstoy and... Um, and uh, humane war and the dangers of arguing for humane war. So, yeah, if you could just address. Well, too. on the on the first point, you know, he, Biden's already said, you know, much as he said with the vice president, she'll pick that he will nominate a black woman, um, which, again, just shows that he is 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 a weather vane. Um, you know, he is responding to the ethical and optical priorities of the mainstream of the Democratic Party always, because, you know, like all politicians, and we should just accept this, he, you know, he cares about, um, you know, acquiring power. He's not someone on whom we should rely to, you know, to, to, to think that hard about how to wield it. What matters is who's around him and what the broader sentiment of the country is. Um, and that's why this court discussion is so important, because to me, it matters much less who is in power than what their power is. And that should be that 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 changing changing that question is what re we really ought to be thinking about when it comes to the Supreme Court. Yeah, no, I've I've been work in spite of what we've said about kind of how American wars become more endless and unfettered. Um, and bled beyond, you know, time and space constraints, you know, the abuse of the AUMF. It's also become more humane during the war on terror and kind of in an almost like, you know, tag team um, relationship between the successive presidents. Um, if you do compare the war on terror to Vietnam, not just is there much more immunity for American soldiers, um, but the 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 death toll relatively and absolutely both of our enemies and of broader kind of civilian populations are falling and that's because you know for some reason in our time which we could talk about um like humane war has become legitimate to a lot of people um we had a big torture debate after march 2004 when the abu Ghraib photos were released um Unlike when the My Lai photos were, were released and Cy Hirsch told the story in 1969, there was no big anti-war movement and, and the revelations of, of brutality and inhumanity didn't add fuel to the fire of a, a, of political, of a political attempt to stop war. And so the Abu Ghraib and the torture debate, the concerned about Guantanamo too, function very differently to, let's say, remove the bugs from a program of endless war. And now people accept it on condition that the Geneva Conventions aren't violated or that John Yu doesn't deny their applicability. And even our advocates, you know, spend most of their time pointing out um, not just the circumstances of Guantanamo, but how many civilians die, they say, excessively um, as collateral damage and drone strikes. But, you know, if, if you, you know, read Leo Tolstoy or you look at what went down during the Vietnam War, again, the primary question is, well, wait, why is there a war? Should it be happening? Is it ethical? Is it strategically wise? 
And so some of us have been trying to like restore emphasis to those, you know, very basic questions. And I've been worrying about whether this emphasis on the humanity of the fight has been something that paradoxically is helping entrench the war, um, you know, beyond our control. And then if it were like more gruesome, um, yeah, and- just make it more, make it more brutal. And then it could, I mean, so I'm not advocating making right. it more brutal, but I'm saying never, um, take your concern for humanity and separate it from, you know, an, a, a kind of ongoing interrogation of the, the use of force. Um, it matters whether it's brutal or humane, humane, that's, you know, it's, it's ethically and politically important to make it more humane if it's brutal, but it'd be better if it never happened at all, especially when it's unjustified and counterproductive. So it's, it's, it's not at all like saying, you know, as Tolstoy actually did back in the day, he would prefer not having any of these laws, which it's hard, it's hard to argue. I mean, we could talk about how he made those arguments. My argument is very different, which is that we should never um, separate off campaigns for making war more humane and and let them coexist with the collapse of anti-war sentiment right. and politics. His argument, I was listening to a lecture that you gave, um, which was, I mean, I was a little, I didn't know about this, but his argument was that, you know, more brutal war would make war less frequent. It was. And, and you know, he also looked at these examples, which he used as analogies. One was slavery. And it's true that before there was abolitionism, there, there were a lot of, you know, laws and movements that made masters, you know, be, be, act less cruelly towards their human property. And actually, historians have said that prolonged the life of slavery. So Tolstoy was, in a sense, you know, raising a fair question about whether more humane war is an ethical mistake because it entrenches the practice it 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 moralizes uh, and he also you know pointed to the rise of humane slaughterhouses you know he yeah. became a vegetarian and so forth and and said look the movement you know to make slaughter animal non-human animal slaughter more humane is actually leading to more animal death than before and so i don't think that the record shows especially in the 20th century that somehow making war allowing war to remain brutal makes its incidents less frequent um i mean how could you like study world war one and two and conclude differently but his his point, I think, stands that there are these risks that making our practices humane entails. Look, a good example has just been raised with the, you know, I'm complaining about global policing that America does. But in the policing debate, you know, until recently, there was like a vast discourse about making policing more humane. And then you get this abolitionist perspective. And, you know, we can debate where that, you know, how the how, you know, whether we should have police, what they should do and so forth. But, you know, he's basically saying, if you don't have a concern for what, whether you should have police and what they should be doing, getting concerned about, you know, how brutal they are could entrench, you know, a lot of domination in our cities or, you know, for war on our globe. 
Yeah. Professor, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thanks thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Very grateful. And hopefully we can check in with you again sometime. Yeah, definitely. You know, I learned a lot. (laughs) What did you learn today, Katie? I think Samuel Moyne, he's just a great resource and people should uh, check him out on Twitter and also check out his many very interesting books. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the point about the humane war is really interesting because that was the whole conceit of the Bush years, right? Which was, well, this is different. This isn't going to be Vietnam. It's not going to be a swamp. What was the, what was the word they were always worried about? Quagmire. 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 It, was, it wasn't going to be a quagmire because we're going to be, we're going to do surgical strikes. Right. Um, we have, we have te- te- technology now that, you know, we're only going to hit the guilty. Right. And, and this is like reflected in basically any coverage of any bombing that we do even today. Like if you look at the, the people who are killed, they always say like 168 extremists or insurgents or something like that. You never, you never see any statistics about civilians killed because the conceit is we don't do that anymore, right? And this, this has allowed people, I think, to think in their heads that war has become this more humane, uh, careful process. Right. Probably it, it creates more support for it uh, than it would otherwise. So that's a good point, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, also check out his book, uh, The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Christian Human Rights, Intellectual History of the Modern Age, and Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. Nice. All very good books. And uh, rate and review us. Rate and review us. Order. Look at this, this little guy. Order order merch and don't listen to people who suck. Rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You just do that little subscribe thing. Get notifications of when we're up. Right. Uh, share us, share useful idiots, share. And don't do anything else. Don't have any kind of interpersonal contact with any with people anyone. outside of the internet. Right. Just, just do this all the time. Yeah. We want you to turn off the show, but immediately go into a state of suspended animation until we're done again. Yeah. Next week. Uh, and we'll let you know when that happens. Um, so uh, just turn tune out and we'll, we'll talk to you then. Yeah. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.